Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about The Courier, a film that was supposed to come out in October last year, but COVID stopped that, so we're kind of catching up with it. It's a historical spy film based on the true events around the Cuban Missile Crisis from an espionage point of view. Uh, so the main character is Greville Wynn, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who's a real guy who I'd never heard of. You'd never heard of? No, no. No. And his relationship with uh, Colonel Oleg Penkovsky, played by uh, Mirabni Nidzi, and again, a person I'd never heard of, uh, the, the character that is, um, but again, a real person. Mm. Penkovsky seeks to uh, stop nuclear war. Khrushchev wants to put missiles on Cuba. He believes that he can strong-arm the Americans into this, that, and the other, even though Penkovsky himself says, our arsenal is nothing like America's. You could wipe us out. We can wipe you out, says at one point. He seeks to avert nuclear war, and he reaches out to the British, who in turn reach out to the Americans, and they decide to get involved a citizen, an ordinary citizen, a businessman, this is this Greville Wynn, mm. Benedict Cumberbatch, who can travel to the Soviet Union, apparently on business, and forge contact between Penkovsky mm. and the West. Yeah, so initially it's just meant to be about contact, and then it becomes more and more into espionage. Yeah, so I want to say a couple of things straight off, which is I like films with titles like The Courier. Mm. I, mean, I mean, I haven't seen all of them, but for titles where it's a boring job title, The Courier, The Accountant, The, the Commuter, he's not a job title, but same thing. <laughs> and they all, to me, they all say, like, this is an ordinary person who's going to get embroiled in something. Yes. That's very exciting to me. Well, I love spy films. So, I mean, I think for me, the enticement was, you know, what I got a little bit from the poster, mm. which was, it's a spy film. The poster had a noirish element. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I like Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. So do I. So, um, And we and, saw the trailer, too. Yeah. And actually, the trailer did make it look pretty, yes. you know, pretty interesting. Mm. The other thing I would say, straight off, is that it's a, I think it's a perfect companion piece to Bridge of Spies. It is. Very, very similar. And very instructive, because I think I remember this discussion about Bridge of Spies where I argued that it's great filmmaking formally, right, but I hated the... Ideology. Uh, the ideology, yeah. We've had this conversation so... a bit, and I think we may have had it in part on the podcast before, but we should... I think we did. ...go over it to some degree, because yeah. I think you're right. I think, and we'll get into spoiler territory, I think, quite quickly with this. The stories start off in a similar place, but they diverge quite severely. Yes. Uh, well, the Bridge of Spies story, just briefly, is Tom Hanks plays a guy, I forget the guy's name, uh, who is an American lawyer, again, an ordinary citizen, who at first uh, defends a Russian spy caught on American soil uh, as a public defender, and then becomes involved in going to East Germany to broker the release of uh, an American uh, soldier mm. who's been caught there. And again, true events. Mm. The difference, and this is, in this respect is a spoiler for Bridge of Spies and for The Courier, is while they both see success to some degree, Bridge of Spies is unqualified. Mm. In The Courier, there are costs, and it is not an unqualified success at all. There is failure involved, mm. to the point where Win Greville Wynn, has to spend two years in prison in a, in a Russian gulag. Mm. That, I think, is an instructive difference. I think to some degree, it's a little bit like what Eddie Izzard said in, in stand-up comedy, admittedly, but he was talking about 
uh, The Great Escape and how the American in The Great Escape lives to fight another day and all the British are rounded up and shot. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the juxtaposition that I wanted to make is, first of all, that the Spielberg film is great formal filmmaking, mm. certainly in comparison to this, right? And in comparison to this, uh, Bridge of Spies looks like a masterpiece, even though it's so uh, banal about some of the ways that it thinks about people and espionage, would be my view. Yeah. Mm. But this is so uh, such banal filmmaking, really, that it uh, prejudices a lot of the strong points of the story and the acting, would be my view. Do go on. Well... I you know I was noticing from the beginning that um, most of the shots were medium close up, medium long shot. It it felt it seemed it had a very TV aesthetic and don't shoot me. <laughs> like you know it seemed to be made for a small screen. It wasn't peopled with things that could catch the eye or add texture. Uh, it's very beautifully shot. Yeah, kind the wonderful of wonderful lighting and light kind of catches smoke and things. Yeah, uh, yeah. kind of you know the the lighting is it's almost kind of classic, you know, uh, uh, side lighting, the kind of lighting that you get in noir. Often you'll just have the you know the light on a face, and sometimes it'll be quite harsh light. Mm -hmm. Right, so the idea is not to make it beautiful, but also obviously it obscures the fact that there's nothing in the background except a face, right? Mm -hmm. You know, which I don't I, I don't mind, right? So well, I think those, those those things you're talking about. I think really the gulag things towards the end, the interrogations, but, they were quite striking to look at. Yeah, they were. But the film has visual devices that seem to come out of the stage, right? Mm. And I was interested to learn that the director of this film was the director of the Royal Court Theatre. Yeah, and actually, I th you know that instantly made sense of the film for me, right? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, it's a social issue film, it's a historical film, it's about, you know, the importance of the individual and the human, the strength of the human spirit. <laughs> it's about Britishness, yeah, uh, about, you know, historical uh, Britishness. And also the film is very staging. It really is all about the performance with a few metaphoric devices. Go on. Well, a few shots that are meant to be striking, yeah, but that are, are actually not, yeah. Uh, you know, reflections, things that are distorted through an oval lens that you sometimes see. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's a film that feels static and without movement. And, you know, kind of the only time that I felt movement was those scenes where they're in the car and you're having, like, the trees kind of reflected on the windshield as they pass by, which is, like, you know, the, the most cheesy basic device. Um, so... The thing about the oval, are you talking about where you see through the peephole into Greville's cell and he's lashing out? Yes. That's the one time I can think of. Because it's not like, they don't use distortive lenses. They just, they, you look through a pinhole at that. Yes. There are a couple of those incidents. There are also scenes where um, going up and down the stairs, you're seeing a slightly distorted image. Um, yeah. You know. Not sure I, that occurs to me as true. Distorted image. Yeah. Right. Well, I I, well misremembering. I, if you mean, well, I suppose if you mean distorted but, in terms of because there's something like, like as you say, a mirror or frosted glass or something like that, that is used sometimes. I don't think, I, I, if you mean just the actual lens is doing like a fisheye thing, I don't think that's true. No, I don't. Um, do you mean, 
I'm not disagreeing with you, but those things are all meant to be like almost theatrical, attention-grabbing, formal devices. But actually, they work. You could see how they might work in theatre, but they don't actually work very effectively on screen. Yeah. I just want to be clear about what we were talking about, that's all. Well, I Um, I think that's what I'm talking about. But the staginess is really built in. I mean... You know, all of those shots that you see in the couple's flat, in Benedict Cumberbatch's flat, with the kitchen in one side, yeah, and what is it, the dining room in the other. Yeah, yeah the living the, room. The living room, mm-hmm. and the phone on the side, and that's used over and over and over again. I mean, it's like... Again, well, I, I wouldn't say it was used over and over. I remember one, it's when you're introduced to the household that they're sat back to back in the different rooms, and it's a very formal it's thing. It's used... It's used practically every time the couple is in the house. You see sure that that's shot. True. Yes, you're always introduced with the kitchen on one side, the living room on the other. In that planimetric straight-on shot, I don't think so. Well, it is you. Well, that was, it has been you. That was my perception. Yeah, right. It's only an image of the inside of that house that stays with you. But that is how it's introduced and set up. It yes, stays with you and a very life. deceptive image because you know then you learn that they're living in like this fabulous Georgian row house. <laughs> you know, so. Kind of, whereas the aesthetic is almost like, I don't know, a bedsit or something, yeah? The kitchen on one side with a little curtain thing, you know, where the bin is, yeah? And kind of, you know, the dining room. That's true. That is, I didn't yeah, really thought about that, but you're right. Well, so that appears that, several, many times. No, no, well, the point know. is, yeah, but that particular shot is, is does not. But that aesthetic well, of what, does. But that I mean, aesthetic of what the inside of the house looks like, where it actually seems fairly squalid, is not what you see on the outside, which is a beautiful house, a townhouse. And London. also, it's not in keeping with a man who has his own business that deals with international sales. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I, don't, that you know, so I think that, to me, that was a theatrical thing uh, with no movement, you know, <laughs> no angle, no... I mean, it felt very stagey to me. And that staginess, you know, so, so the reason why I began to look out for those things is, you know, as we said at the very beginning of the film... From the first moment I saw Benedict Cumberbatch, right, I thought, oh, my God, you know, because he had he has obviously invented a walk for this character. Right. And then you mentioned also. Well, I said it's basically it's Benedict Cumberbatch acting is a limp, a mustache, a hat, a lisp. So you were saying it's all these externals, right? right. I, I mean, you know, the walk I noticed right away. And actually, in terms of Benedict Cumberbatch's performance, it didn't bother me subsequently because he won me over. I think actually he's great in this, mm. right? You know, and people have different way of building the performances. But, you know, my noticing that that walk at first, I thought, well, that's in keeping, you know, with the way that the scenes in the home are being shot, right? And actually some of the scenes when they're, you know, when they're taken out uh, uh, in London, right? Some of the shots are terrific stock footage of the sound of music, uh, you know, um, I forget what the big theater uh, uh, is on Shaftesbury Avenue. You know, but then you also see like Soho at night, and but some of them are very theatrical. Yeah, mm. like you know, faces kind of almost like rushing to the to the camera. Um, well, can you tell? Can you talk to me about what's theatrical about faces? Because it occurs to me that what's theatrical is not faces. That's televisual. Theatrical would be no. blocking, staging, right? People spread out in a in a, that kind of thing. No, well, what I mean by theatrical here is a formal device used to gain a particular effect. Right. Yeah, that is often used in theatre, and, and often it poeticizes or, or it allegorizes kind of what it's doing, right? And so here, 
you know, those cameras and those faces in the nightclub, right, as they're meant to be having like this wonderful time and they just rush to the camera and there is a distortive effect to it, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, you know, well, it's a form, yeah, it's meant to indicate, yeah, that, you know, they're having like, you know, this... Drunk revelry. Yeah, this drunk revelry. And, um, you know, it's obviously there's an economic dimension to that. They're doing, they're showing you this on a shoestring, right? Because if you just have four faces, you don't need to have like a whole nightclub or whatever. But the effect is, the, I, I think of it as a theatrical effect. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting you talk about it in terms of budget because it didn't occur to me that it looked like a cheap film. Ah, well. It I mean, it didn't look it, expensive. It did look, but I it, mean, you know, it was visually very pleasurable, mm. right? Uh, but it looked, it looked like done on a shoestring budget because the effects were achieved with sculpting light or, you know, like, yeah, mm. it wasn't, you, you didn't have long shots, you didn't have the many extras in the shot, etc., uh, etc., most of the time, yeah. They go to the ballet, and there are times yeah. when... Well, they go to the ballet, and what do you see? You see what's happening in the ballet, and then maybe you are seeing, like, 40 extras or something. There are shots of full crowds. There's also shots where, where, well, you, where, the... you, have, where you have Khrushchev addressing all of his people, standing up and applauding. That's okay. a full... Fair enough, yeah. but it's, there's full crowds and full crowds. It still felt like, Fine. you know. Um, it's shot by Sean Bobbitt, uh, who shot films for Steve McQueen. So he shot Hunger... He shot uh, 12 Years a Slave and he shot Widows. And Widows in particular is something I want to think about because you were talking about you know, image distortions, reflections, double reflections in mirrors, things like that. That's something that was all over Widows and you adored it. I did. And that is Director of Photography's Daily Wick. Listen, a Director of Photography can only do what the director indicates or allows. And actually, you know, one of the things that I thought initially about the film, I thought, ah, you know, this is, a, this is a cinematographer who knows how to get these effects, but doesn't know enough to poeticize them. Yeah, so for example, you know, there was very striking lighting on faces that nonetheless kept the face in shadows. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, like, you know, yeah. But also the image itself didn't do more than that, right? So that was my initial feeling. Yeah, and then of course, as the film progresses, you realize well, actually, it's not the cinematographer's fault because you know it's, he's creating like wonderful effects on this, yeah. but actually, they're not being very well, yeah, well, it's, well it's, utilized. It's yeah, it's a director who's not making the most of what the cinematographer can bring in. Yeah, I think that's probably true. The director, I should say, is uh, Dominic Cook, who's directed one film before that neither you nor I have seen. Mm. Quite a small film, looks like, um, and as, as I say, all of his experiences in the theater. I want to be um, clear, you know, that like these things that I was thinking about, the film's staginess and its staticness and, you know, its use of these, what I'm calling theatrical devices, you know, because, yeah, they're meant to have an effect, really. Like, you, you do get those on stage. You know, the, the lights go off or, you know. Um, so I thought that before I read that, this yeah, yeah. guy was the director of the Such Royal Court. I mean, I'd never heard of the director. So I was just thinking those things, you know. And then, of course, you, you just checking up on what the director had done before, you realize, ah, well, you know, th this might be a reason why. But actually, I thought that before I saw a connection to the staginess. So, you know, the, the staginess is an issue and the staticness is an issue. If you think this is a spy film and, you know, there was almost nothing that was suspenseful. 
even the scenes where they staged the getaway, that was not suspenseful. I had a problem with the getaway. Um, I agree with you. I think it, it kind of fell between two pillars, or whatever the phrase is. I think you can do it where you explain everything that's supposed to happen. You see the plan being formed, you see it being explained, and then you see how it happens, and you see how it probably goes wrong at some mm. point, right? You see the comparison. And it's not explained well enough in advance to do that fully. It's also not doing the thing that I think a film like The Next Three Days did brilliantly, which is where the plan is explained as it's happening. Mm. You understand what's supposed to happen. So so in, in The Next Three Days, the whole film is, a, is building up to this, mm. uh, getting his wife out of prison and escaping um and you know you see a lot of the build-up beforehand and you get an impression of what he's going to do but actually it's basically all kept a secret and as the plan comes into action you learn very quickly what's supposed to be happening sometimes half a second before it happens because he's in the middle of doing it immediately it becomes legible and then you know it either comes off or it doesn't something goes wrong he has to improvise he has to adapt and you see everything that that he's planned come into play in the moment and it works very very well this also doesn't do that enough so it's no. half of one and half of the other and it and you you don't feel you know quite enough about how where everybody's supposed to be who everybody is for one thing there's one character they do talk about getting this boat over to finland and that mm. will be freedom um and when the cia woman is talking about that. She's with some young guy who you haven't seen before, and she says, "You'll be fine. Don't worry about it." So obviously, he's a new guy, but he's the one who's going to have something to do with the ferry. And then you see him a little bit. And while you, th the... you think he's a traitor that he's actually betrayed them. There's Maybe. a suggestion, I, but it's I, not clear. <laughs> I, I was confused about what his place was exactly, and 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 where he was in the middle of the getaway. Yeah, and so it doesn't orchestrate that well enough at all. No. But it also is very clear that this is, I mean, the moment that Penkowski comes home and rounds the corner to the living room, you know that there's going to be someone there with his wife. I know, but that also was so badly filmed, you know. Mm. It's like as soon as he says, you know, honey, I'm home or <laughs> yeah. something like that, and uh, you don't see, you know, you just know that's happened, mm. you know. So, so I thought it was interesting because, you know, Tom Curtin is seen as Hitchcock's very worst film, right? Or a lot of people kind of, you know, they poke fun of it. And it's a work of dazzling genius in comparison to this. Because even though it's a failed work, and it's also about, yeah, Torn Curtain, the Iron Curtain. You know, right. Uh, a spy. Uh, I haven't seen it. Oh, well, no. you should see it. It's, it's, it's Julie Andrews and Paul Newman, who everyone criticizes for being completely miscast and so on. But, you know, it's a film that has tension, it has gore, you're nervous about what's going to happen to the characters, mm. right? There's a scene on a bus where, you know, you're, you're, you are tense about what's going to happen to them. Yeah, there's a, a fight scene in a, in a house in the country, yeah, where, you know, it's quite gory. Like, it, it has all these visceral effects on you. I, I didn't feel anything in this film at all, except a kind of admiration for uh, the actors. Yeah. Is that the only thing you liked? I like no, I like the storytelling. I'm saying what I f uh, feeling. Right, I mean, right, I, right. I I I didn't like the storytelling. I liked uh, the cinematography and I loved the actors. Okay, well, let's talk about storytelling then. What's your criticism there? there well, in? where do you begin? I mean, you know, if the way that you're telling the story creates no tension, you know, and it's meant to be a spy film, that's already like what more well, problem well, do you want? Well, put it this way: <laughs> I was very engaged throughout. And I and I, I did want to know what would happen, how things would resolve. I felt invested in the characters. The story is very well paced, I think, 
And it could kind of keep me on my toes. For one thing, have, you know, not knowing these people and not knowing this story, um, really not knowing where it was going to go, and actually not know, not knowing if this guy would even survive. So I didn't expect him to be caught. I did think it would be a we all got away. Um, although I suppose I thought maybe the the, the Russian um, Penkovsky would get caught. It kind of it felt that felt well, to me. But you know, the English guy getting out, the fact that he ends up spending two years in the gulag was a surprise to me and was an interesting development. Well, let me tell you why it wasn't a surprise to me, because earlier on in the script, they tell you that that is one of the options. Oh, like, yeah, I tell you it's an option, yeah. but, you know, very often that's setting up stakes that... Hmm. Well, it's setting, well, setting up stakes is the end of that sentence, you know, and actually we're going to avoid that. Well, The fact that it happens and he has to suffer through it, interesting. Mm, I, th- I, thought, I thought that was all predictable. Actually, I thought it, it's almost like a stereotypical actor-driven, stage-driven production, <laughs> right? That kind of, you know, and I don't disagree with you, it also held my interest. Right. Until, until almost like the end, yeah? Because then you wonder, well, just how are they going to get out of this and get it over with, really? Uh, <laughs> it, it, Whereabouts uh, in the end, do you think? Um, well, you know, the bits where uh, he he's sent to prison and then you forget about the Russian. The film forgets about the Russian until the... Yeah, a conciliatory moment at the end. And there it began, you know, to, to lose my interest because I think, oh, I thought, oh, this is going to be like torture until, you know, they get him out, which actually was not far wrong, you know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I, I mean, I think uh, what held the interest is Benedict Cumberbatch, right? Um, and, you know, the dilemmas for him uh, and the way that he plays... This kind of, I mean, I, I even loved his look. He's, he's just so fascinating in this because, you know, he can be very handsome, right? And in this one, he, he really does look like uh, a Colonel Blimp figure, yeah? Like not too bright, uh, middle-aged uh, uh, guy, really. Um, and the move from him getting more involved, the relationship with the wife, you know, the, 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 the screaming at the child... I thought all of that he handled so beautifully, mm-hmm. you know, that um, it you it makes you forget the banality of the rest mm. of the filmmaking. I was disappointed in the reconciliation with the family at the end. Well, not reconciliation, meant it with the right word, the reunion with the family. Um, because, you know, it's going to end up with that. In a way, I was kind of disappointed about a similar thing in 12 Years a Slave. The only similarity being the cinematographer. It's only on my mind for that reason, because I think the writer is not the same and all of that. But the thing about the end of 12 Years of Slave was like, it just has this return to, after everything that he's been to, it must return to the family. It just feels, even though I suppose it's earned in some respect, feels predictable and a little lazy. Um, this doesn't even show him reuniting with his family. Last time we see him, he's getting out of the car, having been returned from Russia, having reunited with his family, and then they all go into the house. So you do see them together, rushing through the photographers. Then you get this shot where the mother and child are out of shot. It's just Cumberbatch uh, back in his hall. And, you know, off screen you hear the kids say, where's daddy, or whatever it is. And he goes off, and that's the end. I think, I mean... it it wants to it sort of it wants to avoid the cliche while giving you the cliche. It's 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 a very badly told story, I think, uh, and it's a story that is so director, actor, director star driven that it betrays yeah, the other actors and the major components of the story. So, for example, 
You know, if you've seen... What's the actress's name who plays the marvellous Mrs. Meisel? Rachel Brosnahan. If you see Rachel Brosnahan in The, in the Marvelous Mrs. Meisel, you know, you see how witty and attractive and sexy and funny she is. Mm. And you see her in this and you think, you know, here's this amazingly super smart woman who seems to be practically running the CIA and conducting... And you can't make her, like, sexy and attractive and funny, right? Like, you know... She's she's like a frump. And actually, one of the problems in the film is that no distinctions are made between the way people are dressed in England, in America, or in the U.S. Mm. America is the U.S. Sorry. <laughs> Russia, the U.K., the U.S. Right. right? Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, I really felt that. And also, then, in terms of the storytelling, the weight that is given... The Russian, yeah, um, what's what's his name? Penkovsky. Penkovsky, right? Because he's the hero of the story, yeah. right? I mean, it's all right to focus on yeah the Cumberbatch character because, you know, the film, it's a British film about him. But at least kind of make uh, Penkovsky, make it a two-hander, yeah? Like, give the guy more space and give the guy more emotional development and, yeah, mm. kind of, you know, I mean... Show him to us after he's been arrested, you know, what he might be feeling and what he might be facing. And yeah, and that would have made the final reunion more meaningful. But no, they just I assumed dumped him. he'd been killed. I, mean, that's the, I, I assumed until you did see him again, my assumption was they had not shown you that. Actually, it's kind of for tasteful reasons almost. You know, that, that actually it, it was kind of showing a respect for the character that's. Unfortunately, he's no longer in the picture. And he comes back, so maybe you have a point. But maybe it is actually supposed to function as a surprise that he's still around. It kind of did. For well, me. it didn't work for me as no. a surprise. And actually, in terms of emotional weight, you know, uh, the scene between them mm. would have had so much more meaning if you'd seen what he'd endured to get there, and then how actually the knowledge that he'd saved the world, you know, would have made that torture or whatever we saw him face, uh, mm. worthwhile. Yes, I think you might have a point. I, I, that, that scene didn't quite work well enough for me, but I did feel something when, when Cumberbatch reveals it to him in defiance of all the Russians around, listening in, confronting them. He re- and I did. F- you know, I like the forcefulness of that, and I like the, the, the defiance of it. And I do like their relationship throughout. I think it's a real, real centrepiece. I, I, I again felt that was a weak weakness in the film because again it relied on theatrical effect it was just the actor's voice and gesture with a chin you know that was meant to convey all the weight of that as if a camera didn't exist wait which you mean the very end the, the revelation to yeah. to to the guy that he'd saved the world yeah it was all done through the actor I, as in the um uh, as in uh, Miravni Nitti who plays no Cumberbatch 2 I thought you, sorry, explain what you mean. I'm not sure. Okay, what I mean is that the whole effect that he'd, you know, that he'd saved the world, yeah, that Cumberbatch says something, you know, the, about uh, the uh, uh, missiles not being in Cuba any longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the meaning and the weight of all of that is carried. He does it with a chin. He's shot from below and he moves his chin forward and, yeah, to whisper to him or to say to him, actually to defiantly say to him, if I remember correctly. Well, he doesn't whisper at all, he shouts yeah, it. Yeah. That he'd save the world. So, but he also gets up, he shouts across the table. It's a little bit more than just he moves his chin forward. Oh, I thought it was it, just it, he moves his chin. Be more. But, I, but I thought you were talking about the response from 
uh, Ninidzi playing uh, Penkovsky, uh, which is a little blank, I felt. And it's not the actor's fault. Um, so, you know, because uh, the, he's a great actor uh, playing that part. I thought he was fantastic. But the character's not giving enough weight, and he's not, and, and yeah, the character's not giving any weight, and he's not developed enough. No, he's maybe- not given enough moments, he's not given enough color, right? It's actually Cumberbatch who carries it all, right? And that's for better and for worse, because actually he is terrific, right? But I think, uh, uh, and sometimes the film has to hold back and, you know, let the actor carry that's i don't have any problems with it i think this is the film in which like you know with that without the actor the film is really nothing um i did like the relationship between the two of them though throughout I, you know i like seeing them learn about each other start to get on together spe- spend good times and that kind of thing i think they play off well each other basically i think they have good chemistry the they do actors. they do um and that works nicely and it is a pleasure to actually be in their company when they're together yeah um all right so i think we need to wrap this up really your final kind of summary? I had a good time. Yeah. So, I, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely will not be seeing it again, I can assure you. No. To me, it's a, it's a little bit like uh, The Darkest Hour. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but a little bit less smug than that. But it's, it's a kind of banal filmmaking. You can see it making me watch Bridge of Spies again. Which is very easy to do, because I really like watching Bridge of Spies. Yes, well, you'll be much better off watching Bridge of Spies than watching this again. And then when I watch Bridge of Spies, I tend to watch The Post again, because I really like that too. Well. I think Lisa <laughs> just really worked for me. Even though they are both the Tom Hanks, we know, what, we know what's going to be said at the end of this. Hmm. Filmmaking, you know, America, great. Yes. Everywhere else, not so great. Freedom, freedom. Yes, people decent. Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> you just had all those words at the end of a Spielberg film. It wouldn't make as much sense. <laughs> uh, anyway, I kind of... Um, I suppose, you know, just to have a little bit of a last rant. Um, there's such a tradition of in Britain of stage directors, you know, going off you know, and making movies um, for no other reason than they've had success on stage in a way that very rarely, if ever, happens uh, in Hollywood. I suppose Orson Welles is the exceptional kind of exception. Uh, Other people might have worked a little on the stage, but then they had to go through a route to make movies, whereas here... You know, there's so many, Peter Brook and so on, they all made movies. Uh, And it kind of upsets me because actually they don't know how, you Mm. know. Uh, And this is an example of of why. Yeah, they don't know how, right? So they're leaning on all the technical people, but actually they've got no visual flair and no skills, yeah, in terms of, you know, how to convey storytelling. And it just feels banal. Do you think that's also true of acting? Because acting is seen here as theatrical. You learn at stage school. In America, you learn at acting school, film school. Well, I mean, my view, of course, is that uh, American acting is just as great as British acting any day of the week, right? Um, But it is a different tradition. And I think actors here are really wonderful. I mean, I think I wouldn't say that, you know, Cumberbatch suffers you know, because he's someone who learned his trade on stage. I mean, he's, he's fantastic in this. Mm. So, you know, I don't have a problem with that. And the reason why I don't have a problem with that is because, you know, Cumberbatch both, you know, has a 
20, 30 years experience of being an actor. So he's already got all of these skills. And obviously what he physically embodies just by the way he looks and, and moves and so on. You know, so he's bringing in a whole weight of knowledge and experience that is not equivalent to what this stage director is bringing to this movie. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>